Hey guys, welcome back to the show. My name is Lauren and this is Liam. Hello. And we have a really fun show today. Like These are really fun stories. I'm actually excited. Mm -hmm. We're going to start off with a discussion about Lily Singh's new show on Late Night. Uh, Then we have Lauren Duca, her students from her NYU class, filing a complaint against her. Then reviews for the film Joker have dipped after the screening at the Toronto International Film Festival. And if we have time, which I mean, I don't even know because I have so much to say about the other stories, but uh, apparently NPR is reporting on a story where they're essentially trying to redefine rape. Um, so a lot to say about all of those. Uh, we really appreciate you guys spending your Wednesday nights with us. A big thank you, especially to our live viewers. But before we get into that, I do have a really quick message from our aunt's awesome sponsors over at Simply Safe. And this is a really cool product, actually. So did you guys know that on average, according to the FBI, a burglary happens once every 23 seconds in the U.S.? So this is a pretty common thing. And 83% of burglars admitted that they specifically looked to see if there's an alarm on the house that they're, I guess, casing. Okay. So burglars do notice that type of thing. And what's crazy is that despite that, only one in five homes in the U.S. have home security. It's probably because, I mean, home security companies, they don't make it easy. You have to call. Installation is a pain. They're also pretty expensive. A lot of them try to lock you into contracts. It's confusing, takes a lot of time, just in general a hassle, but that's why Simply Safe would be my top choice hands down. They protect every door and room window with 24-7 professional monitoring. So they make it easy. There's no contract, no hidden fees or fine print. And around the clock monitoring is just $15 a month. That's one five. And what makes Simply Safe really stand out is that they have this thing called video verification technology. So when other home security systems are triggered, a lot of the time, police might assume it's a far- false alarm, false alarm, someone's dog or something, and the call will go to the bottom of the list. But because Simply Safe actually has video verification technology, they're able to actually visually confirm that a break-in is happening, meaning that police can get to the scene 3.5 times faster than if you were with a different company. Very exciting stuff. So for anyone who's watching or listening, Simply Safe has a huge deal going on right now. You can go to simplysafe.com slash Lauren. You get free shipping and a money back guarantee. So that's simplysafe.com slash Lauren and, and Simply Safe for any of our audio listeners is S-I-M-P-L-I safe.com slash Lauren. So check it out. So Lily Singh, she's known as Superwoman here on YouTube. She's one of the, I think, OG YouTubers. She's got millions of subscribers now. Um, you know, any video she puts out at least a million views. She's known for her comedic sketch style videos. And what's interesting about her is she's been one of the rare YouTubers who's been embraced by the establishment media. Yeah. Doesn't happen very often. Yeah, a big crossover there. Yeah, because I mean, it's, it's like she got invited to the Met Gala the, this past year. You know, she's uh, got glowing uh, reviews or profiles done of her by different magazines. That kind of stuff doesn't happen to someone like PewDiePie. And I think what makes her different, what makes her stand out is that unlike someone like PewDiePie or even like the Paul brothers, she's pretty woke. I'm not going to say that. Like every video she does is really woke. Uh, you know, I, I watched one just in preparation for the segment, and it was just a regular, you know, no mention of any woke material. I'm still not going to say it was necessarily my cup of tea, but, you know, she does comedy stuff in general. And uh, what's interesting is that part of this acceptance by the mainstream media of her is that she was also recently given her own late night show by NBC called A Little Late with Lily Singh. And it, it's really late, actually. It's like at 1.30. 1.30 a.m., I think, yes. I didn't even know that they had, like, original programming on that late. 
No. No, but I mean, I think that the way that these late night shows are going right now, it's not necessarily a big hurdle, right? Because it's like they buy up trending space on the on the YouTube page. Yeah, right? so it doesn't. And, and it's so, almost like it's secondary. The live show. Yeah, like the YouTube component of these shows is just huge now. Yeah, and so that show debuted this week. To what I I think is fair to say, mixed reviews. Um, and Philly oh, yeah. D mentioned yeah. this. Uh, like it's been super well received from all the media reviews I've seen. Yeah. I think glowing is is fair to say, super positive. But the user reviews, on the other hand. A little, little bit more negative. Uh, so like you mentioned, there's a YouTube page for the show where they post all the clips, uh, like most late night shows, frankly, do. And so I checked some of them out, which we will be watching together right now. Um, before we do that, though, what, what did you think? Um, <laughs> Lauren sent me this last night, I guess, when we started at the segment, and it was like four minutes long. And by the end of it, I was like, I told her, I don't think I'll get through a full episode of this. So, yeah. you know... It's, it's a little bit of a rough ride, and, and you'll see. Yeah, and I mean, like, keep in mind while you're watching this, we did a whole segment about Bill Burr and how people were criticizing him, not because he necessarily wasn't funny, but because they just didn't agree with him. Try to have an open mind about it. I'm not going to lie. I don't agree with it, and I don't find it funny, but hey, maybe you, gentle viewer, will feel differently, uh, but we, we, we have that clip here. <laughs> but I know for sure some people at home are looking at their TVs just like, is something wrong with my TV? Why are they playing Slumdog Millionaire after Seth Meyers? <laughs> hey, Middle America, I'm so glad you're here. <laughs> Look, I get it, okay? I'm not your traditional talk show host. I mean, the media has mentioned I'm a bisexual woman of color so much that I feel like I should just change my name. <laughs> a little long, but it has a nice ring to it. Yeah, so the issue I have with that little clip and really the entire segment and dare I say the whole episode because we're going to be looking at two different segments in this segment is that mm. I feel like Lily thinks we're in the 1950s or something and just like non-white women not allowed on TV. Oh yeah, it's crazy. And I also like the idea that she's kind of like, you know, positioning herself as someone who's fighting the power sort of thing. Mm -hmm. I'm wearing a red suit. I'm doing what I'm not supposed to do. I, I, you know, I'm here where all the cis white men are, that yeah. kind of thing. And it's like, you are as establishment as they get. No, for opinion, sure. You're on you know? NBC. Yeah. For, for crying out loud. And I mean, the thing is, like, she kind of pokes fun of the Like, oh, you know, the media keeps referring to the fact that I'm a bisexual woman of color. It's like literally the only person that I've seen refer to the fact that Lily Singh is a bisexual woman of color is mm. Lily Singh. I agree with that. I yeah. mean, seriously. I mean, I I'm also a woman of color. You're ambiguously swarthy like, how much time I, rege on I reject that notion <laughs> you know it's true how much time on this show though do we spend just talking about like our non-caucasian ancestry like li literally this was a four minute segment that we've cut up you'll see it's the exact same thing over and over again how non-white and non-male she is it, it, it's i'm gonna say it's it feels redundant but that's because it is redundant like your immutable characteristics not a replacement for a personality and definitely not replacement for comedy. Absolutely. Um, also, I love the joke about middle America in there. I, I do love hearing how little these celebrities think about regular people. And I mean, for the longevity of, of her show. Yeah, go ahead. Keep calling middle America racist. It worked great for Hillary Clinton. Um, the monologue continues, though, and we have that other clip. Someone like me could not be here without the many successful, powerful women of color who led the way, am I right? So let's give a round of applause to people like Mindy Kaling. <laughs> what about Michelle Obama? I'm <laughs> 
And last but not least, the brown M&M. <laughs> Listen, beggars can't be choosers, okay? I needed role models and my options were limited. <laughs> she really thinks she is like a pioneer, one of the first non-white women in the media, the, the public sphere. She, she didn't have a choice but to look to the brown M&M. Okay, I, I, I chuckled. Because the brown well, M&M is, is sexy as far as M&Ms go. But. I, I did not. I just had like a blank face as that went. Yeah, I was, I was watching you as you were looking like, at the clips. So it was like just deadpan the entire time. <laughs> um, but yeah, like people, if you go to the comments of this segment, like I said, this clip is on YouTube. Uh, it's, it's, I think, like a 70% thumbs up. So it's not, it's not awful. Some people do like this, but. I mean, I, I would like to know how many of those were bought, frankly, because all the comments are negative. Yeah, that's right? the thing. Like, all all the them. comments are negative. And what people were pointing out is that not only is she not the first non-white woman, like, in media, she's also not even the first non-white woman hosting a talk show. Okay, people were in the comments mentioning, okay, you have Oprah Winfrey, Tyra Banks, Wendy Williams, Wanda Sykes, Whoopi Goldberg, Queen Latifah, and those are just the non-white women that have talk shows, okay? You also want to bring in white women in general. Like, then you have Ellen DeGeneres, uh, Rosie O'Donnell, who are also LGBT, right? She brings up that she's bisexual. So, I mean, you're really not the first of anything here unless you look at the specific little niche of late night, late night TV. TV yeah. Right, okay, then I guess, like, okay, fine. You are a victim and a maverick. Very, very special. But it's like, please stop patting yourself on the back for, like, five minutes to tell some jokes. Oh, uh, and the whole thing, it just seems like an appeal, like, diversity for the sake of diversity is good. Yeah. Because my comedy isn't. You know, <laughs> I, I, that's what it seems like to me. Yeah. Um, and we have more. We have more clips. This goes on. And as a woman, I'm especially stoked to join this group of people. <laughs> If you put every network late night host in one room together and then add me and Hassan Minaj, we look like the IT department at their law firm's Christmas party. I understand that for some people, <clears throat> white people, <laughs> seeing someone like me host a show is terrifying. Hashtag not my Carson Daly. Maybe I shouldn't be joking about this because, I mean, one of the biggest fears of white America is that minorities are coming to take their jobs, you know what I mean? And honestly, we are. <laughs> See, I bet some of you thought I was joking when I said it's really just how she's not white and also a woman. And, uh, you know, her, her bit kind of reminds me of Daryl Davis. If you guys don't know who Daryl Davis is, we, we just did a, a event with him in New Jersey. He's, he's a great guy. He's actually, through friendship, gotten over 200 KKK members to hang up their hoods and denounce racism. Just, like, by being their friend and showing them that He's a person just like they are. Their differences are not as great as their similarities. Um, he's managed to get people to turn away from racism. Lily Singh with her show seems to be taking a different approach, though. So, like, instead of going up to racists and trying to show them, hey, they're good people of any color, she instead seems to be keen to assume all white people are racist and just, in general, try to race bait and be as much of a dig on purpose. Yeah, and it seems like that's part of the reason why she got that job. I think so, me. yeah, and like it, the, ooh, when she said uh, that they're coming to take the jobs, like, what? Well, well that's also, I thought, disgusting, yeah. frankly. I really do think that that's disgusting, because you're talking about, you're, you're laughing at this idea that people's livelihoods are actually being taken from them, right? Yeah. Like, people, when they lose their jobs, a lot of people don't just learn to code. They don't have that ability to do mm -hmm. that. They don't have like the resources. Like, this is an actual real problem or, Yeah, people have to deal with. Their lives get ruined, and we're, we're facing an opiate epidemic in, in America right now where people are legitimately dying, right? So, yeah. But it's funny, if you're a coastal elite, 
Yeah, exactly. It's hilarious. You laugh at it's the hilarious. funny uh, particularly, unemployed working class white people. Yeah, particularly, you know, it's okay if these people are suffering because they're guilty of the sin of whiteness. Yeah. You know? So it, it's the only time when it's acceptable. Yes. I don't know. Just like, I mean, I'm not a sensitive person. I'm really not. I like Dave Chappelle's comedy. Like, he makes me laugh. But it's, And he did a whole thing on, on his special about like kind of laughing at or poking fun at the like the white opioid epidemic and i still thought it was funny because it just wasn't mean-spirited this just seems mean-spirited um so that was the gist of the opening monologue that she did uh we have some clips from another segment of the show though she also did a sketch because like i said sketch comedy is kind of her thing um so the premise of this i think it's like she's supposed to be in a mock meeting of what it's like to be guys the first woman of color to have her own late night show. So special. We have that clip. So, Lily, for your first episode, mm-hmm. we're thinking you enter in a mm-hmm. nice gray suit. Uh, gray? Well, I prefer something a little more colorful, obviously. Totally agree. How about a Navy opening monologue where you cover headlines, news of the week, presidential <laughs> tweets? That's, that's not really my style, you know? I was thinking I could actually share my perspective, especially being a woman and all. Is your perspective not my perspective? No. I'm not sure if people will relate to that. See, I'm not sure that I related to 10 seasons of Friends. See, it's funny because they want her to wear a blue suit because that's what the other hosts wear. She doesn't want to wear that. No, she wants to wear that ugly red suit. Yeah, because she's because she's a woman. That is a yeah, that was quite a statement, that suit. Yeah, it, it really was. So, I mean. Like I said, I'm trying to imagine this humor if it agreed with me politically. I still don't think it. I, I still don't think it's for me. No, I mean she would say things like "brown people," and then you get like a, a laugh crowd. You'd be like, <laughs> "All right, <laughs> brown people." This is the highbrow humor that the the coastal elites are talking about, I guess. Seriously, and the thing is, as a woman, I've never in my life used the phrase "as a woman." As much as Lily does in these few clips. And I'm assuming perhaps in her entire show. And also I just want to say, okay, Friends is universal. It is. Okay, I've lived in Hong Kong, Shanghai, Singapore, London, the U.S., Canada. Everybody loves that show. I I remember when I was in Hong Kong and Shanghai, everybody loved that show. Okay, so Mm -hmm. if you don't, Lily Singh, it's not because you're not white. It's because you're not fun. Okay, I think we can all agree it's a great show. I knew that when I heard her say that, that you'd have a bone to pick with her. Yeah, of course. Of course. I mean, what, you're, she, you're she, too progressive to think Friends is funny? Lauren rewatches Friends. On like, a loop. On, that on in the repeat. office. She could yeah. probably rehearse the episode. And you know what? I still think it's funny because even though I'm not like a, a New York Jewish person, because it's, it's funny. I don't need to look the same as the people to, to appreciate the jokes. Um, in any case, though... After this little exchange in the skit, um, Lily does, in fact, break into song for some reason. I don't want to hate on it too much because I can appreciate the production value that must go into that. We're not going to be pulling anything like that on this show here. Um, But, yeah, this is for you guys to enjoy. Hello, my name is Lily, and I ain't a white man. My skin got some color, and it ain't a spray tan. I know you're used to only Jimmy's in the spotlight, but I'm going to throw some melanin up in your late night. My writer's room look like a mini United Nations. More than 50% women and people are all races, and that's not because I had to. It's because I could. This is the new standard, so take notes, Hollywood. If she want it, work for it, then you best believe she got it. Guys, did you know? That Lily Singh, who who hosts that show, she, she she's not white. Wow. She she's also a woman. 
And it's bisexual, I think I heard too, yeah, right? It's 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 strange. Um, yeah, so sorry if this segment has been redundant, but like her show is redundant. Just imagine what the actual thing is like. And again, like, okay, I appreciate that. I mean, as far as like cringy comedy songs go, it's not that bad, but it's like they are really just checking off every single progressive talking point. Like, ooh, I'm not white. My staff is diverse. Oh, also, yeah. not was, to the wage cringy. gap. Okay, but I have to say, out of all the par- segments in the show, that was the least offensive to me because I found I found a couple of the rhymes there to be clever enough, at least. Yeah. I mean, I thought the content was ridiculous, <laughs> but I was like, and you know what, the production value was good. Was good. Too. No, it was good. I mean, yes, yeah, so that was the that was the least cringy part of it, and that's saying something, I think. Yeah, but I mean, I just want to say, like, I, in the uh, the part where she's kind of patting herself on the back, like I hired non-whites, probably because they were cheaper. But anyway, um, so <laughs> she says as like a positive thing that she's going to hire mostly women, as if it's a good thing. Like, so having a gender imbalance is bad unless it's mostly women. Then it's good. If, if, if it's a good thing that we're talking about. Very progressive. Look, I mean, I, I wish her the best. I think it's always cool when a YouTuber kind of, you know, is accepted in the mainstream. This almost feels like a step backwards, though, because I feel like a lot of these like late night shows, they're really surviving off the YouTube traffic. So for her to almost yeah. go the other way, I mean, I'm interested to see how it's, it's going to work out. But I just I'm I'm not sure how successful it's going to be if we look at the other woke comedians that have gotten similar shows like uh chelsea handler's thing michelle wolf's thing yeah none of them have really gone on too well i mean i will say one thing and that is it's phil defranco pointed out in his show yesterday i think when he was talking about this is that this is the first episode and that's true we haven't seen her be this incredibly woke kind of you know, individual in the past, at least as far as I'm aware, I don't watch her on she, YouTube. She has but done. I'm sure she actually believes a lot of this yeah. stuff, but it might not be beat you over the head with it every, every episode. Every single time, it, yeah. might, it might level up to something, you know, more bearable, like a Trevor Noah. You're right, which Ex- is still exactly which depending on how you are. But yeah, and I mean, like she has done videos. She did this one on stereotypes a while ago that kind of made the rounds on like the response video circuit. Everyone. I th- Maybe I did. I don't know. I've made a lot of videos, but, um, you know, she, so she definitely has made woke content, but I'll say like, this is, this is extreme even for her. So, I mean, we'll see. I did subscribe to her YouTube channel because I think at the very least it's content for us. So we'll see. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll keep, I'll be keeping my eye out on that. Uh, okay. So next up we have Lauren Duca. So if you're not familiar with her, she's one of those woke lefty like journalist twitter accounts uh she started off writing for teen vogue because of course she did uh in 2016 she made an appearance on tucker carlson's show and it this appearance was kind of what i don't know kicked off her her career in the media it didn't go that well it was pretty hostile but uh we'll we'll let you guys have a taste of that what does it mean to threaten the sovereignty of religion? What does that even mean? That means an entire agenda, a platform of based on banning Muslims, which is still available on his website. How does that threaten the sovereignty of religion? That's moronic, Lauren. You're a writer. How does that threaten the sovereignty of it? Pardon me well, for taking what, your words does, literally. Sorry, how does what threaten the sovereignty of it? How, Threatening to ban how does Muslims? Any, that threatens the sovereignty of it? Yes, that completely, that, that profiles <laughs> based on the basis of religion. I love Tucker Carlson. I mean, he he's the most red-pilled person on Fox by far. It's amazing. Oh, Laura Ingram is also pretty pretty spicy, too. I'm a fan. But, yeah, that's the interview that kind of put Duca on the map. It was, I think, 10 minutes total. Very contentious, really, throughout. Um, and so 
she does have a lot of fans among the progressive left, but what I find interesting about her is that, I don't know a better way to say this, but she's actually so annoying. And again, like, no offense, but I think you guys have seen enough that even some progressives don't like her. And I think the thing is that there are some progressives who are, like, self-aware enough to at least realize that she, she comes across as pretty entitled in her work, which we'll give you an example of in just a second, but she's she's been described as a white feminist, which for those of you who aren't familiar with the intersectional lingo is someone whose feminism doesn't take into account differences in class or race. It's not intersectional enough. Exactly. It's yeah. not intersectional enough. So she's like a privileged white woman who only talks about the man-woman difference when in reality, oh, but what about the black woman, etc. It It's hard to explain, but I mean, she unironically supports Elizabeth Warren is, is like mm. the best example of that, that that I can give you. And, you know, the reason why I say this isn't to take shots at Tuca's personality, but it's actually it's like it's relevant to the story we're going to be talking about that even on the left, she's I mean, maybe not controversial, but at the very least, not widely loved. And we have a clip of an interview she did with I think it's Quartz that might help you guys see what I mean there's all of these sexist elements where the way that young women are socialized to talk and the things young women like are asserted as disqualifying factors. But this is the way I've been socialized to talk and this is the way I talk to my friends and that's what I want to encourage is uh, not having to put on a performance of straight white male you know, respectability in having political conversations and continuing to be yourself and care about the things you care about as a young woman while messing with politics. So that's Lauren Duga. And I will just say, I get crap sometimes from people because they say I have vocal fry. That's mm. vocal fry, okay? Yeah. That, that is a whole different level. Anyway, so your introduction to Lauren Duca, you're welcome. Well, and I have something to say about that one, actually. I thought it was interesting because she's making an attack on kind of professionalism, right? Mm -hmm. She was saying, you know... Well, that's not how she would phrase it, but yeah. Right, of course. She's, you know, like this, it's this construct of the white male that they go and they act this way. But we women, we don't act that way. So I'm not going to act that way in a, in a professional setting. I'm going to act like how I naturally am. And it's like, have you ever talked to a white male? Like actually had a conversation <laughs> with them? Do, do you think that we actually, you know, speak in that kind of jargon, like mm -hmm. between each other? Or, or that women who are professional don't? Right, exactly. Maybe, so, I mean, maybe they don't at Teen Vogue. <laughs> but it, it, So it, it's ridiculous to me. It's It's like... It's like saying the way that Trump was speaking, you know, saying grab him by the mm -hmm. expletive um, was fine in her view because, well, he's just being himself, you know. It's, yeah. Sure, he's, he's supposed to be presidential, but... Maybe it's even classist to say he should change the way he talks. Exactly. Yeah, I could be intersectional. Uh, anyway, and even in addition to, like, all of this stuff, there's also been rumors or maybe allegations at this point uh, that she was a bit of a... B word, according to her former colleagues, when she used to work for HuffPo. So she's got an interesting past. But anyway, why this is all relevant, why I'm bringing this up is that Duca has a new book coming out this month. It's called How to Start a Revolution, Young People and the Future of American Politics. Everybody gets a book. Anyway, um, so, you know, as such, when a, a pundit has a book out, they kind of like they go do interviews. There are all these different pieces about them and reviews about the book. Um, so for Duca, one of such pieces was by BuzzFeed. So BuzzFeed writing a piece about this privileged feminist and her new book about like starting a revolution, you'd think it'd be, I mean, honestly, pretty complimentary, if not yeah. unsubstant, unsubstantive. Yeah, I had to double take 
the BuzzFeed logo. Yeah. I was, I was like, is this really coming from BuzzFeed? Exactly. It is BuzzFeed. Okay. Wait, this is really coming from BuzzFeed. Yeah. Like, I know, mean, like... to her credit, the writer, oh gosh, I'm going to butcher this, Scotchy or Sachi Cool, um, she goes hard. Yeah. <laughs> she goes yeah. hard on Duca's past, her book, and what I wanted to talk about in this segment very deliciously, her very short-lived tenure as a professor at NYU, or I guess... The lecture, lecturer, I would Le- let me, uh, Yeah, I maybe lecturer. PhD, but... Lecturer would be a better way to say that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we have some of the article. It's actually a pretty long and in-depth article. You can find it on BuzzFeed. It's called, How Did Lauren Duca's Revol- Revolution Backfire? We have just some excerpts. We're going to kind of read together because it's interesting. So, uh, according to the article, quote... Duca also spent this past summer teaching The Feminist Journalist, a six-week New York University journalism course for both high school and college students. After Duca agreed to our interview, she also acquiesced to letting me sit on sit in on the final day of the class. She asked her students to come prepared with questions for her for what would be an AMA-style session in Washington Square Park. For those of you who don't know, that stands for Ask Me Anything. Her students sat in a circle around her in the wet grass. It was, I imagine, exactly what Tucker Carlson would envision a liberal journalism class might be. A bunch of kids from varied backgrounds, ethnicities, orientations, and gender identities who could each afford a $6,500 class wearing t-shirts that said genderqueer or kill patriarchy. See, I love how she's kind of self-aware, this journalist. I like it. Okay, but keep in mind, guys, that... This class was $6,500, the one that students in Zelie are now complaining about. And I just want to say, um, isn't NYU also the same university that previously offered Talia Lavin a, uh, a class? I'm pretty sure it was. So Talia Lavin is that awful writer who had to resign in disgrace, essentially, after she accused this ICE veteran of having a Nazi tattoo. Turns mm. out it was not. Um, but anyway, she had to leave... Uh, leave her job. She ended up writing for Media Matters. Then she got laid off as well. But she got offered to teach a class by NYU about how to report on the far right. But they canceled it after no one registered for it. So it's looking really good for their their journalism school here. Anyway, the article continues. In the park, Duca praised her students for their ideas and pitches. You so totally learned what I was trying to teach you. Nearly four weeks after the course ended, however, her students sent a collective formal complaint to the heads of the NYU Journalism School about Duca's conduct. We are disappointed at the department and NYU for hiring a professor with more interest in promoting her book than teaching a group of students eager to learn, they wrote. In the days after the course ended, several of her students also reached out to me to share more of their concerns. Her ability to exploit the movement is really frustrating, one former student said. Okay, so um, that's pretty bad. Yeah, I agree. And so keep in mind, I think this was a summer class. So that lasts like, what, six weeks or something like that? I think they mentioned. It's an expensive six weeks. Yeah, $6,500. So, I mean, I'm totally on the side of the students. If they paid that to get, you know, to learn something and it ended up being bullcrap, I fully support their right to complain. Um, So... It's kind of interesting because as this writer was writing this piece, you could tell that she and Duca started to have a little bit of friction. I think the writer was asking questions Duca didn't like. So you can see in her reporting of this, Duca's attitude toward her gets a little bit more catty. Um, Yeah, but she continues... Quote, Duca was hesitant to allow me to join her for her last day of her NYU class, and I understood why. After her syllabus started circulating on Twitter, so did the endless mockery. The syllabus seemed to focus heavily on personal branding. Students would have to tweet for 20% of their grade. 
and uh, unironically included John Ronson's So You've Been Publicly Shamed as required reading. I do know that I was looking at um, complaints of the class just on social media. People were upset that a feminism, a feminist journalist class had no required readings about feminism or essentially journalism at all. Although I will say I don't blame her for the Twitter thing because a lot of journalism nowadays is on social media. I'm yeah, kind of I mean, I mean maybe there's something valid there, I guess. It uh, could be argued anyways, but it's, it still seems, it does seem a little bit Yeah, when you're when taken yeah. as a whole, everything about this class just seems like the biggest waste of time and money. Uh, and here's something that Lauren said, Duca, quote, I think that they're effing corny. They're making fun of me for putting Twitter on my syllabus on Twitter, which is the only place they have a voice, Duca said. I wish the people who spend a ton of time criticizing me would use that energy to make a thing, to have an idea. I love that. Make a thing, guys. <laughs> Don't criticize me. Make a thing. <laughs> Um, a few days after I sat in on Duca's class, I received a number of emails unprompted from her former students who wanted to talk about their six weeks in her class. Out of 10 students, five spoke to me on the record under the condition of anonymity, specifically due to fear of reprisals from Duca or any of her professional connections. All of them had similar allegations against Duca and the class's structure, that Duca didn't follow her own syllabus, that she spoke often and inappropriately about her personal life. Doesn't that she, shock me in the least. That she would belittle and yell at students and most pressingly that she targeted one student in particular all the students wrote a formal letter of complaint to nyu and signed it sincerely the feminist journalist class summer 2019 when i reached out to duca for her comment on the complaint she started by saying i guess i'm not a teacher <laughs> so let's okay to recap there are only 10 people in these in this class um, from what I understand, when it comes to these journalism electives, NYU does keep really small classes. I think with the Talia Lavin thing, only two people registered for her class, so it got canceled. But they would have accepted anything as like, even as low as eight. I think they max out at like 15 or something. Um, so for like five, 50% of your students to actually take it upon themselves to go and find this reporter who's writing a story about you and tell them like, no, she was so bad. Um, and then I think, yeah, all the students ended up signing the formal complaint letter. Like that's pretty bad. Yeah. That's awful. Like you're batting 10 out of 10. These people did not like your class. Yeah. And these people are, I think, I don't know, mean to laugh so much. I'm a, sorry. A little bit extreme <laughs> as well. I mean, the whole class is about feminist journalism exactly. right which i think is a paradox in my opinion it's like okay you're supposed to be a journalist doing objective reporting but yeah now but now it's about feminism like that, but that's a great point right it's not you know? like these are um you know trump supporters who might otherwise have yeah a, an agenda against duca like these are people who willingly took a feminist journalism class during the summer yeah they signed up for her class specifically yeah. for sixty five hundred dollars yeah so. um so one of the uh one of the Students said there was a consistent lack of professionalism that persisted throughout every aspect of the course. Oh, sorry. This is what the complaint says. We are disappointed at the department and NYU as an institution for hiring a professor without a syllabus and classroom management skills. We are disappointed at the department and NYU for hiring a professor without a clear course objective. I'm frankly surprised by the sounds of the course that like it managed to get this far. I would assume that if you're pitched to teach a class, you'd have to you know, in advance, give the syllabus, lesson outline, maybe some rubrics about how you would grade assignments. Because I used to be a TA in university and like we had to do all those things just for our discussion sessions. I would assume if yeah. you're teaching an entire class, it should be similar. No, Absolutely. there should be some sort of overview. Well, this is what people say when they're talking about like, okay, you don't need to go to university to, to you know, get a career because yeah. 
if you're doing one of those things, like maybe some of those fields, this is the stuff that you might be being taught. In university. And this has no practice. What, what these students just got, these poor 10 students who almost did a self-inflicted wound by yeah. registering for her class, they got nothing useful for their future. No. And, but and they did get a huge bill for it, yeah. right? So I wonder how much she got paid. I don't know. I'd be interested to know what the yeah, percentage of the course goes towards. Exactly. Her, so you know. I guess like NYU made sixty five grand off of that course. So I wonder yeah. how much goes to the professor personally, or at least teaching or visiting lecturer. I'm not sure. Um, so all five students alleged that Duca's class was disorganized and a master class in Lauren Duca's personal life. To which she puts in parentheses what Lauren said. The point of it is that I'm oversharing all the time. And I think that, yeah, some people like it. Some people don't. Apparently, you effing hate it, but that's fine, Duca said. Um, they said that she would vanish for 30 to 45 minutes per class to meditate. She sounds so neurotic. Yeah, honestly. she does. Oh, my gosh. Super neurotic. And another little, like, uh, parenthetical <laughs> response from Duca quote it was a three hour class and we took a break and I would meditate for 15 minutes and they would be gone getting snacks and stuff Duca responded uh, and that the class was a waste of six weeks for all of us and we don't want anyone else to make this mistake again they claimed Duca would snap at them for small problems accuse them of not having done the readings and never actually read any of the assignments they submitted to her Duca responded that she did read all the assignments, though she added, it's okay if I'm not a great teacher because I'm great at a lot of other things. <laughs> that was, yeah, that was the high IQ rebuttal I was waiting for. <laughs> it's know. so good. It was like she was speaking to herself. Yeah. Like, you know, <laughs> like I, I'm still good at other things. Like, And it's funny, like, usually when you have, like, a failure or yeah. something, which happens to everybody, of course, but it's like you're going to feel really bad at first, but then... You know, after a bit, you might have a friend or someone say like, hey, don't worry, like you're you're great at other things. But yeah. it's like with Lauren, as she's failing, she's the one who's telling herself and others this. It's like, I mean, she doesn't lack confidence. I guess that's like a positive. And with no apology in inside. No, she hasn't like, apologized you know. at all. Um, she, and the writer continues. But most galling is that all the students, both in interviews and in the formal complaint to the college, claim that Duca went out of her way to target one student in particular, an exchange student who was visiting New York for school. Her English wasn't perfect, but that's hard, one student told me. She came from another country. She was very courageous for taking this class. The students claim that Duca would unfairly admonish this particular individual in class. We all clocked at two or three classes instead of classmate. They claim that Duca said the student won't have a lot to say during presentations, and she called her work basic and vague, and that during one class, Duca made the student cry during a one-on-one -on -one meeting. To this, Duca responded, I said, you need to work. She cried. Like, come on, is that targeting? What am I supposed to do? You didn't do the work. Here's a trophy. She's pretty funny. Oh, I'll give her that. I'm... I'm I'm having a good time with this article. Um, as I continued asking Duca for comment about the specifics of the complaint, she became more and more agitated. You should put in there that my tone was expressly pissed off and frustrated, Duca told me. You're being so effing hard on me, Scatchy, and I really, really, really would ask you if you would be grilling a man in this same way. The author is a woman, by the way. Another woman. It's amazing. The crap that I have endured to continue to sustain a voice where I'm just fighting every inch for the same thing that I think that you want, which is public power and equality, and I'm trying my goddamn best, okay? That's what I'm going to do from now on. Like, if anyone says anything negative to me, I'm going to say, would you say that if I were a man? 
<laughs> doesn't matter the context. Doesn't matter what I've done. Doesn't matter if it's another woman saying this to me. It's crazy. That's what I'm going to say. I oh feel sorry gosh. for whoever is invested into her life. <laughs> it's so good. That's, ter- that's terrifying stuff, honestly. Yeah. Someone just that, at every time they make a mistake, to say, I'm trying my best. If you don't love me at my worst, you don't deserve <laughs> me at my, you know, one of those people. It's, it's like just, the typical, like, live, wow. laugh, love. Yeah, exactly. Oh, millennial mentality. It's my alarms so are just good. going off like crazy. I, mm-hmm. I have the instinct to run immediately right now. And you're not even near her. I it's, know, exactly. It's so great. Oh, gosh. I feel so bad for the students. We are with you. I hope they get reimbursed, get extra credit, something like that. Um, and I think this should be a lesson to NYU. Stop, like, just giving woke twitter celebrities classes okay i mean i know they say if you can't do teach but it's like if if that is true then people who can't even do definitely shouldn't teach like they can't teach either so maybe start looking at people with i don't know teaching credentials instead of twitter clout when you're looking for for professors of new classes Whew, that was a good story i enjoyed that okay next one is about i keep calling it the joker but the movie is actually just called Joker. Uh, It's directed by Todd Phillips, who also did the Hangover movies, as well as War Dogs with Jonah Hill. I I like him as a director a lot, actually. And it stars Joaquin Phoenix. So this movie... I thought it was Joachim. Yeah, Joaquin. Joaquin. Sorry. Yeah, my bad. (laughs) Uh, So he's really good. This is the... uh, He doesn't really do, like, mainstream movies all that often, which is why a lot of people were excited about this. Uh, It's not out until October 4th, which is, I think, in two weeks, but it was screened at the Toronto International Film Festival, which wrapped up this past weekend. And according to this one article, it's interesting, the Rotten Tomato score for the film has actually dropped since the Toronto reviews came out. Uh, So we have this article by Screen Rant, which says Joker's Rotten Tomatoes score drops after early TIFF TIFF reviews. Uh, Joker's Rotten Tomatoes score drops a bit following negative reviews out of the Toronto International Film Festival. Even though it's a few weeks away from hitting theaters, Joker is poised to be one of the most polarizing films of 2019. While some have praised the movie as a game-changing masterpiece, others have voiced concern about Joker's potentially problematic approach to its social commentary elements. The debates about the film's merits should only get more heated when it opens to the general public in October. It continues, as Joker reviews continue to come in, the film's Rotten Tomato score currently stands at 77%. This is down from 85% in late August, an 8% difference. Yeah, I couldn't figure that one out. Hey, some people might have trouble, and that's okay. Thank you, writer, for giving us that. (laughs) As of this writing, 77 Joker reviews have been submitted to Rotten Tomatoes, 59 of which are positive. Okay, so like the article mentions, this isn't out for general audiences for another two weeks. I'm definitely going to see it. Do you have any interest? He doesn't like to watch movies because... What Lauren's trying to do is get me to go watch the movie. Propaganda. I mean, um, it's fine. I see it myself. It looks it looks more interesting than than virtually yeah. any movie I've seen in, in recent history. The last one I think I saw in theaters was um, A Quiet Place. Yeah, right? which was and also good. That was a good movie. Yeah. yeah so and this, this is, one might be one of the ones that I actually do watch. We'll see. And people are really excited about it because it's like a grittier... I mean, it's by DC, yeah. but it's I think it's got the R rating. Um, but, I mean, until we see it without knowing everything that happens in it ourselves, we kind of have to wonder and speculate about all of this yeah. content. Um, I find what, what appealed to me at least in the trailer that I watched was it looked like Joaquin. Joaquin. How, Joaquin. 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 Um, <laughs> it looked like a, a very good performance from the snippets mm. that we did see. 
So yeah. that's uh, and, and you know you have to follow on Heath Ledger's footsteps to some degree, but this looks like. Um, you know, really very good. impressive. Kind of like definitely. almost like Oscar Beatty, which would be cool because yeah. it's been so long since uh, like movies that were actually loved by the public, not just yeah. critics had that kind of buzz. But I mean, even to his credit, even the stuff I've been reading that was negative about it did praise his performance. So that's how you know he did a good job. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like the article said, it's going to be it's proving already not even out to be a controversial film because of the way it handles social issues. And I mean, on the show, we talk about controversial social issues all the time, especially in the media. So you might be wondering, what is it? Does it deal with race, immigration, politics, like all of these things that have become so divisive? What? But the answer, from what I can tell, is no, none of that stuff. What's apparently so controversial about the film is that it humanizes and I think tells the story of jo- of the Joker. All right? And you might be thinking to yourself, oh, okay, like is that not the point of making a film about an anti-hero we get his backstory we get to understand his motivations and stuff uh traditionally the answer would be yes but i think like we live in an age of binaries where everything has to be black and white except curiously enough for gender in which case there it's a spectrum but no like for for some people it really is like that so the fact that i think this film is trying to delve deeper into the character it's upsetting people uh, to help us understand the pushback to this film, I have this social media post that was making the rounds, actually. This was a few weeks ago, and I saved it when I saw it because I felt, hmm, I feel like this might turn into a thing, Outrage Over the Joker film. And I was right. So it's essentially like I have a sixth sense for you know what will knowing what will piss SJWs off. Yeah, the spicy yeah. takes. Exactly. So it's not as lucrative as predicting like lottery number, n- numbers. Still fun, though. Um, So here's the post. And I don't even know if this is someone who's actually seen the film, but at the very least, they were upset about it. That's the internet for you. Um, They say, okay, I've pinpointed exactly what it is that bothers me about a Joker movie. I don't want to watch a movie that shows us the trauma that drove the Joker insane. I don't want to watch a well-intentioned but unstable man get bullied until he turns into a mass murderer. I don't want to watch a man get rejected by women as an excuse for his future of domestic abuse. I don't want to be shown what a poor, unfortunate underdog this man was who was sadly forced by circumstances and that nasty Batman to take up a life of crime. I don't want to have sympathy for a man best known for his robbery, murder, and arguable rape shoved down my throat for two hours. I don't want this to be sold as a relatable story that can happen to anyone with a bad enough day, and I don't want to be around any of the lonely white boys who relate to it. Do you see what I'm getting at? I don't know if there is ever a good time for a movie that paints mass murder as the logical conclusion, okay, making a lot of assumptions about the film here, of a socially isolated, debatably neurodivergent white man being failed by the system, but I feel as though this is not effing it. I don't want to see a movie that idolizes the Joker when there are plenty of easily armed F-boys? I don't know what that blur was, I guess. Okay, who already think he has the right idea without adding a tragic backstory to elicit sympathy. I also don't want the narrative line to be drawn between mental illness and mass murder, as is so often done in modern eras to Batman villains, and as is so common with the Joker in particular. I don't want it to get highlighted and underlined in a Sharpie as well. God, I am sick of the Joker. So that post got a lot of shares and a lot of likes. And I think these people are, they're literally afraid of understanding a bad guy. 
I mean, not even like agreeing with them. She says she doesn't want to see a film where it mass murder is painted as the logical conclusion. And I don't, I've never seen a film do that. Um, they just want just, him to be the monster that they envisioned the white man to be. Yeah. And that, that's, that's the binary thinking. And what makes a good villain, a well-written one, is that it's based based on their circumstances, like their experiences and their beliefs, yeah. they need to feel like a hero in their own minds. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. no, it, it's not that mass murder is the logical conclusion, but hopefully you see a story where at the very least in his mind, you can understand if you don't have to agree with it though, why he made those choices. Um, of course, you're not going to agree. Yep. No choice. He had to kill those people. Like they had it coming. I mean, you can't blame him. No, yeah. that's not the goal there. Um, but I mean, I would hope that we at least understand him better. Yeah, it's not even the logical conclusion, and that, no. that that's what you should be doing. But yeah, I, I agree. It's trying to humanize them and and tell a better story, make the the villain believable. You know, yeah. not just some kind of fictitious like cartoonish bad guy. <laughs> uh, yeah, I am the bad guy. I'm I am solely malevolent. I'm Doctor Robotnik. You know. I'm, yeah, I am bad even in my own understanding. And I just want to do evil. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like that's just not realistic. And even right. I I have to say with um, gosh, Jack Ryan. Is that what we watched together with uh, uh, yeah, with Jim the, from The Office? Yes, yeah. It, it, if you haven't seen the series, he, it kind of talks about Islamic radicalism, and I thought it did a good job of portraying the Islamic terrorist, n- not in like a, a, quote, sympathetic way where you think, oh yeah, you know, the infidels just need to die, but you at least understand the motivations, his backstory, how someone who wasn't a terrorist got to that point based on his experiences, and I hope that's what the Joker does as well. Um and like, like this post alluded to, there have also been complaints specifically about the portrayal of the Joker as having mental health issues. That's a big topic. We have mm. another article talking about that, too. Uh, it's by Salon, where you know good things happen. It's called, Why It's a Problem If Joker Connects Mental Illness to Villainy. This is a longer article, but the, the author does write, In the opening shot of the trailer, Phoenix's character Arthur is asked by a professional of some kind whether it helps to have someone to talk to question that he answers with a creepy, slightly unhinged smile. A few shots later, we see him jotting down in a notepad that the worst part about having a mental illness is people expect you to behave as if you don't. It also becomes clear that Phoenix's Joker has a Freudian, perhaps downright Oedipal relationship with his mother, and that the bullying he receives at the hands of random outsiders is linked to his visible displays of mental illness. And they include this, quote, The worst stereotypes come out in such depictions, mentally ill individuals as incompetent, dangerous, slovenly undeserving. The portrayals serve to distance them from the rest of us. Uh, The writer continues, even though people with mental illness are less likely to commit violent crimes than the mean and are more likely to be victimized by them, the news media regularly speculates as to whether certain violent criminals have mental health issues. Film and television reinforces this by frequently giving their character an explicit or implied diagnosis to why they're bad, whether it's James McAvoy's villain in Split, Anthony Perkins' portrayal of Norman Bates, or the entire fictional universe of mentally unwell evildoers established in the Hannibal Lecter series. It's really important to note that Split was an awful movie. I'm sorry, that movie was awful. I thought it was okay. No, you're It's not the worst thing um, M. Night Shyamalan has done by a long shot. That's that's not not a great argument, though. (laughs) James McAvoy did a great job in that. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. So I think it's fair to question the role that mental illness plays in films. Uh, And, you know, television or even specific genres like horror obviously got a big shout out there, but... I also think it's unfair to say that it's unreasonable to have a specific antagonist have mental illness and be violent ever. 
right? Because, I mean, yeah. it's fair enough. They are less likely, uh, people with mental illness are more likely to hurt themselves than someone else, if anything. Or, and they're or to much be harmed less likely, by people that aren't mentally ill. Yeah, much less likely to be violent. Um, but at the same time, for some serial killers and domestic terrorists, we're talking about, like, mass murderers here, mental illness does play a role for some of them. And I say that as someone who watches a yeah. lot of serial killer documentaries. And we certainly see, at least in, in mass shootings in, in the recent history, is mm-hmm. that we see a lot of um, there have been warning psychoactive with, drugs as yeah. well being involved in that. So I mean, the, you know, there's some be, validity to it. But, but I, yeah, I, I would want to stress the point that most people that have mental illness are totally not a threat. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I and you shouldn't like be ostracizing them for that. It's, yeah, and I, I think that's is, that's but. a fair comment to make when we're analyzing media as a whole. But I think it's unfair to take this one film and say, oh, they're yes. demonizing people with mental illness. If mm-hmm. all you ever see uh, in the media are portrayals of people with mental illness being violent to other people, then we need to have a conversation. But it's like as a, a, a singular work of art, this one director doesn't have a any control over what other people do in their films. And I think this is a fine story. Um, So some people are also upset here that, gosh, they're worried the film glorifies incel violence. I've heard that specifically, glorify incel violence. We have just a headline here uh, by someone from The Independent. If Joker is just another celebration of a toxic, egotistical male justifying his bad behavior, I'm not here for it. And the little tagline is, you've already met the Joker. He vaped. His favorite book was The Unbearable Lightness of Being. There was music he understood that you just had to listen to. Few people understood him, but he picked you. And, I mean, they're just saying, they're worried that seeing this film might encourage more incel attacks. I think he actually has a love interest in this, actually. So debunked. Is it the mother? That's why. Oh, I have heard, I've, I've heard there was an, there was an uh, how do you say that? Oedipus? Oedipus? Oedipus. Oedipus complex thing happening. But no, it was, it was like a, uh, it yeah, was a, it was a black female, right? Yeah, in, yeah in the trailer, at least, he does seem to have a love. But maybe that's why he goes crazy, because he's rejected. That's where the... I don't, I don't know, right? We haven't seen the movie, but I just think it's, it's so funny that we're at a point where we can't even like explore these themes in media, which is totally fictional without people worrying that we're sympathizing those traits too much. Yeah. Like, what? People have made films about... Like I said, literally Islamic terrorism where they explore the backstory, but because the Joker is like this white guy, we can't explore why he is the way. It's so strange. Um, Like I said, I'm going to go see it. This film has a lot of people really, really excited about it. It's out October 4th. This isn't like an ad for it, but... I mean, I kind of want it to do well now that these people are upset Honestly, by the it. anger that Rotten Tomatoes is at something now, it might be something that you want to keep your eye on, right? Cause yeah. It's like with Chappelle. There's like Chappelle's this inverse thing. relationship yeah. between what critics say and what audiences say. Well, right. I'll even say like 77% on Rotten Tomatoes is still pretty good. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, um, yeah I might... Uh, we'll see. I might do an actual like dedicated video review to it if people keep getting really upset about it. We'll see. And if you guys want that. Yeah, let us know. Mm-hmm. And we will both go see it. Hooray. Yeah. So, okay, final story. And this is a shorter segment, but... There was this NPR article being shared on social media, and it had some, like, shocking rape statistics. I'll say that. Worryingly high. Yes. But what people were pointing out once they actually read the article was that the people who conducted the study used a very strange and very open definition of rape. So the article is called Tip of the Iceberg, 1 in 16 Women Report First Sexual Experience as Rape, which is like, if you read that, you're like, what? That's shocking. Okay, and I mean, more than three 
million women experienced rape as their first sexual encounter, according to a new study which surveyed women ages 18 to 44 in the U.S. The study published blah, 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 internal medicine found that most respondents were adolescents when they were raped. It also found that these women were more likely to suffer worse long-term health outcomes than women who had sex voluntarily for the first time. The article says that about 6.5% of women, an estimated 3.3 million nationwide, said that their first sexual experience was rape. The average age of most victims was about 15 when they were assaulted. The average age of their partner or the assailant was 27, Hawks notes. This suggests a major power, power discrepancy and possibly a difference in physical size as well, she says. Which More isn't the physical size difference, by the way, not present in women and men of the same age. That's true. Completely. Just want to uh, note that it's important. <laughs> Uh, says more than 26% said they were physically threatened during the encounter. 46% said they were physically head down, held down. And this is where things get interesting. Over half, 56% of them said they were verbally pressured into having, having sex. And 16% said that their partner threatened to end the relationship if they didn't have sex. Mm. These forms of coercion were not mutually exclusive. The definition of rape is any sexual encounter that's unwanted or non-consensual, Hawk says. And when a woman or girl is coerced into having sex that she doesn't want to have, that is still considered a rape. So when people kind of finished reading the article and they saw that part, there were questions that people were raising. Because I don't think anyone's trying to argue that rape isn't serious, rape isn't a horrible thing. Right. But including, and this is what the researchers seem to do, being verbally pressured into having sex or being told that your partner would break up with you if you didn't have sex with them, including that under rape, a category which includes people being physically threatened and physically held down. Yeah, so I think it's important to make the distinction between being verbally threatened and physically threatened, right? Sorry, verbally uh, pressured Ver and yeah. phys physically threatened. Right, right? not the, the same. The and verbal they do pressure is different. Distinguish, yeah. right? Yes, they Verbally do. pressured is like... Man, it would be really great. I really want like oh, yeah. like that ver is very really, different than yeah, a threat. Exactly. Um, and so here's the thing. I think it's a really, really bad thing. It's a really crappy thing to do as a person to pressure someone into having sex with you, especially if like they've told you they're not ready and it's their first time, and yeah. you know they're only 15 and threatening to break up with someone if they don't have sex with you is just awful. So I just want to make it clear, I'm not condoning these behaviors. These are still really bad behaviors. But I mean, including them under physically threatening someone and holding them down, like I just yeah. don't see how that helps women. No, I can agree with that. And I will say, they do say that the average age of the assailant was 27 and the victim was 15. In and of itself now, would be maybe uh, was it statutory rape. That would be a form of rape. That yeah. is actually, you Yeah, know, for sure. Um legal but uh illegal. Or, or illegal but yeah. a legal definition of it you yeah. know um so um i mean i think if you actually measured it by the median age it would probably lower the the, the age of the ass assaulter mm -hmm. but regardless of that I, I mean i will bat for the team briefly and say that if any of these stats are remotely true you know even if half that's true it's still the too idea many of a 27 year old forcing in any way even even verbally well, that's pressuring still... it's still statutory rape it's still degenerate and i still yeah. think it's degenerate if you're 18 if she's 18 and you're 40 or something mm -hmm. like that i still think that there's definitely a hard line that we... any of the power imbalance and that's what the like yeah. major power discrepancy the article does talk about like i agree with that as well that's still really really wrong but it's like yeah i mean the the way that we combat the rape and manipulative behavior towards sex and relationship 
those are different things. And so yeah, yeah. when we start to conflate them as being the same, I just I don't see that it ends up helping women at all. And it's kind of like we we just did an episode on yes means yes and affirmative consent. Right. I don't know. I just feel like we're drawing really weird lines in the sand when it sand when it comes to like sexual intercourse mm-hmm. that I'm I'm not quite understanding where this is coming from. I don't know if it's be like we as a society have just devalued sex so much that we almost don't know how to handle it when sexual violence occurs or when women end up feeling emotionally crushed when they end up having sex that they didn't have, right? Because it's supposed to be totally meaningless, not a big deal. Right. But then if your boyfriend like pressured you verbally into it, it's like if I pressure you verbally into sharing your ice cream with me, are you going to be really upset? It depends how much you like ice cream. cream Probably not, right? But then if you get verbally pressured into sex, that's obviously a bigger deal. But right there by that admission, we're admitting that it's not just nothing. It is something. So it's like we're almost like at this weird dichotomy where we've made it so trivial that it's almost hard to talk about these issues now without admitting, oh, by the way, it's not just nothing. Um, Yeah. So even, I mean, with those other numbers, though, 26% physically threatened, 46% physically held down. These are still unacceptably unacceptably high numbers of that uh, 3.3 million. And I guess what I was pointing out, just as men, we have to be on the lookout for this kind of stuff because it it is unacceptable. And we do have, I do hear that mentality all the time. You know, if I'm, I was uh, in an MMA chat room the other day and some guy was saying, you know, if she's 18, I don't care. I will root it is what it was, the term that he used. Never heard that term before. But You mean you know, like no matter how old he is. No matter how old he is, yeah. if she's 18. And I think the implication there is also it's whatever's legal. Like I don't think that the, the arbitrary number of 18 yeah. only matters to him insofar as it's, it's just the law, right? Wrong. So it's just it's like that kind of mentality we need to be calling out a lot more, I think, because I, I do think yeah. that it's genuinely well, society destroying if you were to... I think absolutely because it's, you know, if you look at the longevity of relationships between people who are like in their 40s and 18, they're not good. These are not like pair bonds for the rest of their life. I mean, maybe sometimes, but probably not. People actually were recently calling out Leonardo DiCaprio for that. He dates, he exclusively dates 20 year olds. And yeah. it's weird. He's like, I do in his find that weird. Now. And he, he looks a little bit strange now, too, I find. Yeah, so not as cute as the Titanic no. days. No. No. Um, but yeah, I think that's pretty much all the time we have for the show. I completely forgot to tell you guys to please like, share, and subscribe if you enjoy the show. Oh, yes. And, uh, you know, we will be reading your super chats uh, right now, actually, once the uh, the stream of the main show ends. And if you really want to support us, you can head over to blazetv.com slash Lauren and subscribe using the show. You le- Using the code Lauren, this is the best promo we've ever done. And I mean, aside from that, I think that's pretty much all we have to say. We really appreciate you guys tuning in. Thank you for spending Wednesday night with us and we hope to see you again next week. Take care.